Although the characters we discuss are fictional, the challenges people face every day are not. The information we provide in this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you are struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Thanks for listening and welcome to the Jedi Council Podcast, where we explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters. I'm very excited to have a special guest on today's episode. Today, Dr. Emily Pasetsky is here. Dr. Pasetsky is a licensed clinical psychologist and assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Minnesota. She's done important research on eating disorders, including on suicidal behavior among people with eating disorders, and she also treats patients at an outpatient clinic. I invited Dr. Pasetsky on today to talk about eating disorders and body image during pregnancy and during the postpartum period. How are you doing today, Emily? Hi, Katie. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on the show. Thanks for coming on. We got to see each other in New York for an eating disorder conference. Was that already a month and a half ago? We did. Gosh, I think so. It's been a little while, but it was really great to catch up. and, And I really appreciate all the work you're doing with the podcast and trying to to disseminate the research that folks are doing. So I'm really excited to get to be on. Thank you so much. And it seems like we have an overlapping clinical interest where we both have been interested in women's health, um, mm-hmm. including, as we're going to talk about today, how eating disorder symptoms can occur alongside pregnancy and postpartum. So I'm both excited to share this with our listeners and just to learn from talking to you about what the research says. Yeah, great. I'm looking forward to it. So I thought I'd start out just by asking you your personal story of how you got into clinical psychology and then how you got specifically into the research areas that you focus on. Sure. Um, So I was actually raised in a family. My mother is a psychiatrist. um, So I was kind of very familiar with working with folks with mental health concerns from a young age. and my father's actually a scientist, so I was also really raised with that value um, of the importance of the scientific methods and using evidence-based approaches. Um, so clinical psychology really felt like a natural fit for me to be able to pursue both of those things. So getting to do that direct um, clinical work and patient care work with folks with mental health concerns, but also really understanding from a scientific perspective what's going on and, and how we can best um, treat these folks. And, and my interest in eating disorders really began um, in high school when I saw many of my friends really struggle with body image concerns and eating disorders and um, noticing that, that some folks were really affected by that, others weren't, and, and not really knowing why that was, and so really getting interested in that. So that's kind of what led me to graduate school. That's really interesting. And, and what was your kind of educational pathway? How did you end up in Minnesota where you're at now? <laughs> yeah, so um, I went to graduate school at University of North Carolina. So I'm actually originally from North Carolina and got to get connected with um, the incredible work that was being or is being done by Cindy Bulick um, at the University of North Carolina. Um, and what I really valued about my graduate training there was getting to do both the the epidemiological genetic research. So that's how I started doing the work um, with suicide in individuals with eating disorders. Um, But 
but also getting to do the treatment outcome research. Um, so I'm really passionate about doing research that is going to be able to directly impact clinical care. Um, so while I was in grad school, I got to be involved in a, a few different treatment outcome studies. So one was uh, developing and investigating a couples-based treatment for adults with anorexia nervosa. Um, and then another one was um, working with moms with, with who had a history of an eating disorder um, who had young children. So seeing if we could help kind of break that cycle of risk. Um, so I had really wonderful experience at uh, University of North Carolina. And then when I was looking for fellowship, um, the University of Minnesota had uh, an eating disorder grant. And there I got to work with Scott Crow who does work in suicide and eating disorders. And I also got to work with Carol Pearson, who does treatment outcome research. So I really got to continue to uh, foster both of those interests and then uh, ended up staying on for my career. So I've been really happy there. Well, thanks for sharing that. And we got to overlap with the, the your postdoc site for people who are listening to this episode has sites in Fargo and Minneapolis. So we... Emily and I have been on phone calls together trying to figure out what the right assessment protocols are and what the correct diagnoses are for participants that are going through studies. And so we've been able to kind of geek out about diagnostic (laughs) stuff and and classification stuff along the way. Absolutely. Really getting in the weeds there with those diagnoses. That's right. So can you tell us how people in the field define body image? You mentioned that was one of the things that inspired you to get interested in this area just from observing your peers go through it. How is that, yeah. how's that defined by researchers? Yeah, you know, it's really a, a multifaceted concept. And what it refers to is people's perceptions and attitudes about their own body. Um, so we think of that as being particularly about their appearance, although it's not exclusively. Um, so it includes how people are thinking about their body, feeling about their body, Um, attitudes related to their physical aspects of their body, so shape and weight, also leanness and muscularity, athleticism, sexual attractiveness, physical functioning, and aging. So it's a really complex uh, construct. And do people tend to have, if they have positive feelings about their body in one of those domains, does it tend to be something you see in all of the domains, or do people really have some areas where they feel good about and others where they feel bad about? You know, that's a really great question, and I don't think um, people tend to look at it that way. So most of the the literature, at least within the eating disorder field, has kind of narrowly defined it as on a negative to positive scale. But I think there are a lot of different facets that we don't tend to to tease apart. Can you feel positive about your your muscularity but negative about your weight? I think we just don't tend to get that uh, detailed, unfortunately. Similar to the last question, how do people in the field decide when eating behaviors cross over into a clinical eating disorder diagnosis? So this is earlier I was talking about us talking about kind of having consensus when participants are in eating disorder studies. And it's important to try to have some agreement about the best way to classify that person so that our research is more meaningful. And what are the ways that the field does that? Yeah, you know, it's such a great question. And and the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, or the DSM, does have very specific definitions for what we think of as the primary eating disorder diagnoses. So anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder. So they have very specific criteria of 
um, the amount of weight loss or, or sort of how quote unquote underweight one needs to be the frequency of binge eating or frequency of purging behaviors. Um, so as you were alluding to, when we would be on those calls, we would talk about whether, um, the amount of food that somebody ate was enough to count as a binge, you know, is it unusually large, um, things like that, as well as, um, that overvaluation of weight and shape. So, we get really specific when we're trying to do the research because we want to make sure that we're talking about the same things. So when we say anorexia nervosa, are we on the same page about what we're talking about? Um, however, what we know is that the majority of people with eating disorders uh, actually still receive a diagnosis of either other specified or unspecified eating disorder. So those really rigid um, DSM diagnoses don't capture everybody who has clinically impairing um, relationships with food, eating, or their body or weight. Um, yeah, that's a that's an important distinction that you made. It kind of reflects the need for improvement in our, the way that eating disorders are classified, because if most of them are falling in the other specified or unspecified, then that means that the, the system, the current categories don't fit quite right. So when, I, when I'm going into the clinic, I have a slightly different hat on than when I'm doing a research diagnosis for just that. Yeah, that, that distinction is really important. And you mentioned overvaluation of weight and shape. Would you mind saying a little bit more about what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So um, that's one of those geeky terms that we use when we're doing the assessments. But essentially what we're looking at is how much of somebody's self-esteem or their how they value themselves as a person is based on what their weight or their shape is. Um, so when they're thinking about their value and whether they're a good person or not. Is that dependent on what the number on the scale tells them? Is it dependent on whether their quote skinny jeans fit them or is it dependent on other things like uh, their relationships with their family or friends or their performance at work or school, things like that. So when we see that somebody um, is spending too much time thinking about their shape or their weight, it really uh, detracts from their ability to engage in other meaningful aspects of their life. I could see how that is definitely one of the parts of eating disorders that I don't think is talked about as much as restricting food intake or purging. But really, when you mm -hmm. treat that clinically, you see how much it impacts their lives when they're thinking about themselves just based on what they saw on the scale that morning and how that can ruin their day and and just change the way that they even look at how they fit into the world based on their weight and shape. Absolutely. And and I have a, a colleague, Dr. Pakanowski, who has done some work of monitoring people's moods across the day on days where they've weighed themselves and days where they haven't in folks with eating disorders and seeing that on those days where people weigh themselves, they do have um, more fluctuation and more negative mood. So it, it is really important and impactful for those folks. With all of the, the body and life changes that accompany pregnancy, that certainly seems like a particularly vulnerable time for women with regard to body image and disordered eating. But what does the research tell us about these issues? Yeah, you know, it's such a great question because I have that same hypothesis going into this work of People, there's so much focus on body image changing and what you're eating that I, I sort of assumed this would be a big trigger for, for many folks with an active eating disorder or a history of an eating disorder. Um, what the research tells us is actually an estimated 50% of women have an improvement or even a remission of their disordered eating symptoms during pregnancy. 
Um, so about half of folks are going to do a lot better during that time period. There's a lot of hypotheses about why that may be. Um, however, it's important to note that we do also see a worsening of um, eating disorder symptoms or emergence of new disordered eating symptoms during pregnancy. Uh, so about a third of folks with anorexia will get worse during pregnancy. Um, and we also see a new onset of binge eating behavior during pregnancy. Unfortunately, the research isn't really great at predicting who's going to do better during pregnancy and who's going to get worse. Um, so we're not really sure how to, to counsel our folks when they're planning on a pregnancy of, of what the impact will be for their eating disorder. So we just want to make sure that, that folks are really connected to resources as they, they plan for a pregnancy. That is really interesting. And it is, that's what it, it is so hard to predict. And without knowing that, you mm -hmm. know, that, but even knowing the idea that about half do better when they're pregnant, that's, that's hopeful to know. And, and you're right. That's kind of going into that. That wasn't what I would have guessed, which is why, which is why mm -hmm. research is good because it kind of gets to that. <laughs> and have you, what does that look like? So if someone is feeling better about their body, is it, does it, and, and this is probably both of us can speculate, or if there's research on that, correct me. I can imagine some people, you know, in, in eating disorders, sometimes we try to improve body image by focusing on the functioning of, bo of bodies and not looking just based on appearance. And so I can imagine for some people having a baby and being able to be pregnant and being and all of that stuff could make them feel more appreciative of their body or cherish their body more. Does that seem to be what happens in some of those cases? In some of the cases, yeah. So interestingly, there's actually evidence that women with eating disorders have more of a mixed reaction or even a negative reaction to learning that they're pregnant, particularly in that first trimester. Uh, so that's really important to note is that um, oftentimes we as a society like to really celebrate when people are pregnant and to be aware that this may actually bring up a lot of feelings for people with an eating disorder that may not always be positive when they find out that they're pregnant. Um, but some of, there is some anecdotal or some research sort of thematic research that's looked at why folks think that they do better during pregnancy. And some of it has to do with people saying, you know, it's not just about me anymore. I'm eating for my baby. So it's easier to eat when you're feeding somebody else than it is when you're feeding yourself. Um, and there is a, some folks do identify that um, appreciation that their body can can do this amazing thing or seeing their body in a new light. So uh, there's not clear research, but a little bit of a mix of that. Looking at the more negative side of that, is it what you'd expect for the people who go on the other path where they struggle with having the weight gain and, and being expected to eat more and changes in their body? Yeah. So, um, the, the expectation on weight gain and, um, you know, there's always comments on how much somebody gains weight, either they're gaining enough, they're not ga they're gaining too much, um, physicians and other people in the community will often comment on weight gain. So there's that extra emphasis on how somebody's body looks and is it right um, can be really challenging for folks. Some of the thoughts around um, the increase in binge eating is the sort of normalization of overeating during pregnancy. So we hear, in, you know, in pop culture, the, the cravings for the pickles and ice cream and things like that. And um, kind of this idea that it's okay to binge eat. That's what my body wants and needs. 
um, or maybe sort of a bounce back from the restriction that people were doing and letting themselves kind of overeat during during pregnancy. From all that you're saying, you can really see those different pathways. And I do hope the future research mm-hmm. is able to predict who's at risk for worsening and, and who's likely to yeah. get better, just like you said, so that we have a better idea going into that about what the expectations are. But in the meantime, it is nice mm-hmm. that we just know that people need to be monitored and stay connected in that way. If they start noticing problems, they can get helped with that early on during their pregnancy. Exactly. And I will say that we've been talking mostly about pregnancy so far. Um, the postpartum period does seem to be a particularly high risk period for that reemergence or worsening of body image concerns, disordered eating and eating disorders. So it's a little bit more mixed in pregnancy, but it does tend to be a higher risk postpartum. So something else to be looking out for and aware of. Definitely. And, and clinically, it seems like Sometimes we we actually we had a question about this on Twitter that with the risk of postpartum depression that some of the disordered eating could coincide with that as as we know when people experience depression it it can affect their appetite either decreased or increased and also depression eating disorders tend to be comorbid or co-occur and so I could see that as playing a part in that too. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I'm so glad that you brought up depression because I think a lot about the the perinatal mood and anxiety disorders more broadly. So this is a, a high a period of high risk for mental health concerns for women more generally. Um, we do see a really strong level. There's a strong level of evidence for an association between uh, disordered eating and depression during pregnancy. Uh, There's some evidence for eating disorders putting people at risk for postpartum mood disorders, although that actually hasn't been consistently replicated. So we have better research for that association during pregnancy than we do postpartum. Um, Similarly, there's there's strong evidence for the association between eating disorders and anxiety during pregnancy, um, but the evidence is a little bit more mixed when we're looking at postpartum for uh, anxiety. One of the the things that the other question that was brought up had to do with social media and maybe particularly on Instagram. I'm not on Instagram that much. I'm on there, but not a ton, but it seems like there's some kind Mm -hmm. of phenomenon of people posting like, I just had my baby two weeks ago and I'm back to my original size or something like that. Have you either research wise or anecdotally come across that idea that there's this comparison to this kind of like, I guess it's called fitspiration or whatever on social media and that that can exacerbate symptoms for some people? Oh gosh, yes. Um, I don't know of any research, but anecdotally, I hear this all the time that there's so much pressure to be back to your, you know, quote, uh, pre-baby weight, um, that it's not even just on social media when folks are at the grocery store and, and the magazines always have the, the pre and post, um, of the celebrities. Um, this was really big around princess Kate's pregnancy. So we will probably see this as well, um, with Meghan Markle, just how much pressure there is on people to look a certain way and kind of bounce back immediately after the baby. Um, so social media and media at large, this is, um, uh, this is, it, it's just really prevalent. The other thing about social media is that 
Um, you get these targeted ads. They know that you're pregnant from the things that you're searching and, and what you're posting. And so people will start to get really targeted ads about losing the baby weight. Um, so even if they're not following these people on Instagram, even if they're not clicking the hashtags, they start to get um, these images popping up in their feed, which can be really distressing and really challenging. And that can be really tricky because I think, especially for people, if your home right after with the baby on maternity leave, often social media is one of the ways of connecting if you're not getting out of the house much, at least early on. And so, Mm -hmm. and also people want to see pictures of the baby and all, all of that kind of stuff. So I can imagine it could really, for someone who's vulnerable and they're on social media a lot, how it could, it could negatively impact them. I'm guessing some people take Mm -hmm. themselves off of it, but other people Maybe not. Maybe they keep looking at it and they think that they need to just meet those standards. And I can imagine that being really stressful. Yeah. And some folks do take themselves off it because it does get to be so challenging. But as you mentioned, when uh, you're home alone with a baby, when you're up in the middle of the night doing feedings, it can be a way to stay connected. So I usually try to work with folks around curating their feed as much as possible. So making sure they're only following um sites or, or celebrities that make them feel better, um, than, and not following the ones that make them feel worse. Um, when they get those targeted ads, you can unsubscribe, you can report depending on which platform you are. So really taking an active stance to try to curate their feed to make sure it's serving a positive function and not serving one that makes them feel inferior. Yeah, And, and that makes a lot of sense because it also points to how there can be positive mood and positive connections through social media, but it does sound like it takes some time to really notice what is making the positive impact, what's making the negative impact, and how to maximize that knowledge for the individual person. Yeah, absolutely. It's about bringing the awareness to how you're feeling in that moment. Is there anything else we should talk about with regard to the research before we move into some of the clinical approaches to address these issues? I think that covers most of the research that I wanted to make sure we talked about. Okay, great. Well, we talked a a little bit about therapists helping with social media, but what are some other components or approaches that therapists might use to help women with body image and eating disorder concerns during pregnancy and the postpartum period? So um, there's not a lot of research looking specifically at eating disorders during pregnancy or postpartum. Um, However, a lot of the treatments that are evidence-based are evidence-based for both eating disorders and pregnancy and postpartum. So that's really where I try to draw from. Um, So in terms of psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy and interpersonal psychotherapy are evidence-based treatments for both uh, eating disorders as well as PMADs, uh, perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. Um, also using couples therapy. So bring, if there is a partner in the picture to bring the partner in as much as possible, um, and figuring out ways that you can use social support. So I, I try to really pull in anybody that can be involved in treatment. So if that's a partner, if it's extended family, if it's friends, you know, kind of using, um, the tribe as it may be and, uh, or the village. So not kind of being in isolation, um, social support groups, getting getting patients connected outside of just the individual therapy can be really helpful, um, whether that's a, a psychoeducation group or just a support group. Um, they both have good evidence base for, for PMADS. Um, as an individual therapist, I also always want to make sure I'm talking to them about prioritizing sleep, particularly in the postpartum period, um, getting in some 
mindful, joyful movement, as it were. Um, exercise is going to look different in pregnancy and postpartum, but it can still be really helpful for mood and body image to move your body a little bit. Um, and then also, just like when we do eating disorder treatment um, outside of pregnancy and postpartum, we do want to make sure we're working as a team. So um, if there's any sort of psychopharmacology talking about um, risks and benefits of untreated mental health concerns during pregnancy, as well as the risks and benefits of psychopharmacology, um, getting dietitians involved to talk about the unique um, nutrition needs that somebody has during pregnancy and postpartum. That goes well beyond the scope of my practice, so I really lean heavily on the team in those cases. And that's something that has really struck me about working in different areas, that of all of the mental health issues that I've treated people with eating disorders really do, you do tend to pull in nutritionists and physicians mm -hmm. because you want to make sure that people are medically stable, especially if there's pregnancy or postpartum issues involved. It seems like it's especially key during that time to just really work together with people who have the expertise of psychiatry, general medical knowledge and therapy. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think that to me is one of the uh, the most fun parts of working in this field is getting to really collaborate the care. I, I really like that, too, because there are a lot of diff difficult decisions and tough calls to make. And so when you have different people who are all really care about things but bring different parts of expertise together to make decisions, it helps to feel more confident that you can make the best decision for that person. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank, th thank you for explaining that. I think that really talks about the comprehensive approach and how it might look in pregnancy. I think that one thing that I've seen clinically and anecdotally is a difficulty for some people to ask for that social support during the postpartum period that they feel like they should be able to handle everything on their own. And I wonder if you come across that at all. Yes, absolutely. And so one of the things I, I try to work with, um, folks during pregnancy, if possible, if they, if they get identified or they're struggling during pregnancy and really come up with a postpartum plan. And so some of that is who are the people who are going to help you and what are they going to help you with? And let's set that up now so that you're not in the space of having to ask for it when you're really struggling, um, when you're sleep deprived and things like that. So even little things, seemingly little things, sometimes people will create a chore list and they just put it up on their fridge. And so if somebody comes over and says, what can I help you with? That mom can say, I don't even know. Can you check, check the chore list on the fridge? So they're not having to say, will you do my dishes? But it's just up there as these are helpful things that, that you could do. So really trying to plan ahead and, and put those supports in place because you're right, asking can just be so hard. Thank you so much for your time today. Do you have any take-home message for our listeners about eating disorders, maybe particularly for people struggling with body image issues? For anybody who's listening who's in maternal health care, I do really recommend screening for disordered eating or body image concerns and having conversations with your patients about how they feel um, about discussing their weight um, and how they're feeling during pregnancy and postpartum. So I think we do a, a good job of screening for mood concerns. We don't do a great job of screening for disordered eating behaviors. So if you have any listen, listeners in mental health care, I would really put in a plug for that. Um, but anybody who's struggling with any of these concerns, knowing that you're not alone and that there is support out there. So we talked about social media can be a, a positive influence if you 
um, are really mindful about how you use it. And so during any of those times, taking that critical eye towards messages that you're getting in diet culture or about what your body should or shouldn't look like um, to really question where that's coming from. And if that, if that's serving you, if it's making you feel better, if it's making you feel worse. That's really outstanding advice because it's not a one size fits all situation where, you know, people just respond differently to different things. And so if you're mindful of how your mood is after you've been looking at this account or you've been doing this thing, that seems like that's a very sensible way for you to be able to just look out for yourself and take care of your own mental health. Yeah. And and the last thing I I just want to say is that, um, you know, for anybody who is planning on um, pregnancy or postpartum or becoming a parent, knowing that it's um, a really challenging and, and can be a really joyful experience, but um, if the expectations of the reality are not what you had in your head, that that's okay and that's normal. That as a society, we really like to um, uh, sugarcoat things and say that this is going to be the best time of your life and, and all is positive, and that can really lead to feeling shame, isolation, or different. And so I just really want to normalize that this is a challenging time um, and help is there. If you seek it, um, use that village, use that tribe. So you've, you've got the support in place. I'm so glad you brought that up too, because I, I think that's very true that people can feel guilty for experiencing actually really common feelings where they're feeling like yeah. this is hard, or I should be so grateful all the time that I should never feel stressed that my sleep's disrupted or whatever it is. And then they end up feeling worse about it because they felt bad and then they feel bad about feeling bad. So I think what you're saying is really helpful to kind of talk about how it's more complex than it's sometimes depicted and it's okay to struggle and talk about those things. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Emily. I really appreciate your time today. This is excellent information and... Just thank you for all the great work you're doing during this important time period. Yeah, well, thank you, Katie, for inviting me on and giving me a a platform to talk about these things. And and it's also great to have another colleague who's doing similar work and and having that support um, and how we can best help our patients going through these issues and these struggles. Thank you for listening to the Jedi Council Podcast, a member of the Geek Therapy Podcast Network. You can find more information about our podcast or blog at www.jedi-council.com. If you would like to support the Jedi Council Podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Jedi Council. The views expressed on this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Additionally, this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you're struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help.